If you want to open to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look there this morning. Author Bruce Wilkinson reminds us about the story of the late Howard Hughes. Wilkinson said if there was one word to describe Hughes' ambition, it was more. He said he wanted more money, so he invested his inheritance, and within a few years, it was up to over a billion dollars. Hughes wanted more fame, so he went to Hollywood and became a filmmaker and a star. Hughes wanted more pleasure, so he used his wealth to buy anything he could possibly think of to bring him pleasure. He wanted to experience excitement, so he designed, built, and piloted the fastest aircraft of his time. Wilkinson said Hughes could dream of anything money could buy and get it, because he believed that having more would make him happy. But of course it didn't. Wilkinson said Hughes confused the pleasure of having more for yourself with the greater joy of giving yourself to something bigger. His dream was not significant enough to bring him fulfillment in life. And so in his old age, he became withdrawn. He became unkempt, emaciated, drug addicted, decaying teeth, long twisted fingernails. But he said up until his death, he held that idea that more would bring him happiness. Well, there's another man in Scripture that was always wanting more. And it was Saul of Tarsus. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Saul when he became had his conversion and went from Saul to Paul. But before the conversion, he was on a quest for more. But in his case, he wanted more religion. Look at our Scripture with me. Philippians 3, we're going to start with Uh, The second part of verse 4. It says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Before his conversion, Saul was the epitome of religiosity. That's a word for you. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he begins to list his qualifications for his religious qualifications. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to Scripture. As part of the people of Israel, who were the most religious people on earth, they were God's chosen. And of the Israelites... He was the most religious. He says a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, a Pharisee. We know the Pharisees were ones that knew the law. They memorized the law. They they put it on their hearts. They put these uh, things on their foreheads that showed how much they memorized. They were strict adherents to the law. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Which is what they did to the church because they didn't like it. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Saul was super religious to the point of persecuting the early Christians. Do super religious people ever persecute those who don't think like they do? (laughs) Yeah, they do. And Saul was super religious. But it was clear that something important, something critical was missing in his life. He reminded me of John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church. During his studies at Oxford, Wesley uh, became a pastor, and he was a rigorous student, careful with his orthodoxy. He led a devout life of good works. 
they observed uh, the Saturday as well as Sunday for the Sabbath. He and his friends would visit prisons, provide slum children with food and clothes and education. They would give alms. They would study diligently. They would fast regularly. At Oxford, they were called the Holy Club. As if it were not enough, Wesley became a missionary to save the heathen in Georgia. This was about 200 years ago. But inwardly, Wesley wondered if someone would ever save him. Because at that point in his life, he was super religious, smugly self-righteous. But deep down, he knew something was missing. But the story goes at a place called Aldersgate. He felt his heart warmed and he began to trust not in his diligent works, not in what he was doing. But he began to trust in his relationship with Christ. As for Saul of Tarsus, he met Christ on the road to Damascus and suddenly realized that all of his religion really didn't mean anything. And he would write this. Continue with me in verse seven. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to know the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And see, Saul leads me to two critical questions we need to answer. And the first is, what is the difference between being religious and knowing God? And the second question is, how can we know God? And I realize these may seem like very big, very deep questions to try to answer this morning, but, but just stick with me. Because the first question is, what is the difference between being religious and knowing God? We ask that not only because of the experiences of Paul and John Wesley, but of so many other saints throughout the ages who came to that point in their lives when they realized that wasn't enough. When in the words of Isaiah, their religion, their righteousness was like filthy garments. Dr. Jack McKenney was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Bethesda, Maryland, and he was preaching on this scripture and he saw a parallel in his own life, so he began to use contemporary terminology to, to interpret Paul's words this way. He said, if anyone thinks he has a birthright in the church, come talk to me. I was born in the church. Cradle roll at day one. I was in a week old when I attended my first church potluck. I memorized the Ten Commandments at six, the Beatitudes at seven. I memorized the Sermon on the Mount by age ten. I not only knew the rules at an early age, I kept them. No drinking, no chewing, no dancing. He said, I had perfect attendance in Sunday school for 17 straight years. It would have been longer if the doctor had insisted that the flu was not something I share with my brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, but I woke up one day and I realized my strict adherence to the rules meant very little. I was striving to be good, to be righteous, but I was always frustrated in my own failures. Everything I tried to do in my life to make God like me seemed worthless. I was striving to will myself to be the person worthy of God's love. But all the while, God was trying to tell me 
I'm already loved. So I've thrown away the rule book. I've stopped keeping count of my wins and losses as a Christian. I'm trying to live in a free, loving relationship with Christ my Lord, who calls me to follow Him, not rules and regulations. See, when you seek to be religious, you have a tendency to focus on the rules and the rituals and the regulations. But you forget about the relationships, the relationships with your neighbors and your family, and most importantly, the relationship between you and Jesus Christ. I mean, rituals and rules and regulations, they can be great. They can be helpful in in how we live out our faith. But they can also become idols, something we worship, a checklist that we go down and say, yeah, I've done this, 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 and this. I must be good. And we forget and we ignore the prompting of God. Let me give you a good example. In his book, The Call, Oz Guinness tells a story about Dr. Arthur Burns. He's the former Federal Reserve Board of the chair of it. And although he was Jewish, Dr. Burns agreed to join a Bible study at the White House. Since he was Jewish, the other members of the study were afraid to ask him to pray at the end of their time together. But during one meeting, they had a guest speaker come in, and he wasn't aware of the unwritten rules. And so we asked him to pray. And this is what he said. He said, God, may the day come when all Muslims come to know Jesus, when all Jews come to know Jesus, and when all Christians come to know Jesus. It kind of hurts, but it's true. Because there are a lot of Christians in our world who don't know Jesus. They're following the rules and the regulations, but they don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ. See, there are a lot of super religious people in our world that still do damage in our world. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, think about the Inquisitions and the Salem witch trials and 9-11 and events like that. See, how do we know if you know God? Because just being religious is not enough. Just following the rules and regulations is not enough. So the best answer I can give you is, do you know God? Is, are you trying your best to live like Christ? Not long ago, pretty recently in fact, I came to the realization that sometimes I speak before I think. Which I shouldn't do. Because sometimes I tend to say dumb things and I wish I could just take them back. And usually, after saying these things, I look over at Amy and she has this look on her face like, Tim, you're an idiot. Why did you say that? And so I adapted, adopted this method. I call it the WAD method. What would Amy do? <laughs> what would she think if I said that? But as Christians, we, don't, we shouldn't ask WAD, what would Amy do? We should ask, what would Jesus do? do? What would Christ do? Because he is our most reliable guide. What is the best guard against doing horrible things in the name of Christ? Focus on him and his character. I mean, can you ever imagine Christ condemning someone else because they look different or talk different or acted different or maybe even believed a little different than we do? No. The only times in Scripture I can think of where he outwardly condemned anyone was the money changers in the temple because they were taking advantage of God's people. 
and his reaction to the Pharisees. Because they were being super religious, professing their love for God, and yet looking down on everyone else. See, we used to sing this song when I went to camp and around the campfire, and it said, uh, they will know we are Christians by our love. So are we being Christ-like in the way that we are loving others? And there are other components to his character, of course. There's his dependence on prayer, his attendance in the synagogues, his knowledge of Scripture, his willingness to lay down his life for us. WWJD, what would Jesus do? That covers a lot of territory. But if there are things in our life that we cannot imagine being part of Christ's life, if there are things we are doing or saying or not doing or saying, that we can't think, well, Christ, he would never do that then it doesn't matter how much Scripture we memorize, how faithful we are in attendance, how sincere our prayer life. We don't know God. We're just being religious. So it brings me to the second question is, how can we come to know God today? And the simple you know, Sunday school VBS answer is, uh, say yes. Surrender your life to Him. Because reading the Bible... That's great. Getting involved in social injustice, that's great. Spending hours on your knees, perfect. Giving generously to the church, fantastic. All of these are time-honored ways of showing that we love God. But it's not a prerequisite for us to get to know God. Knowing God means surrendering our will to His. Asking what would He do? And then doing it. Not just thinking, oh, that'd be a great idea if I went there and did that. But actually serving and being a part of this community in terms of life. See, God is always running, always, already running down the driveway to us. Remember when I talked a few weeks ago about the prodigal son and the father was sitting there on the porch and he was waiting for his son to come home. And the moment he saw his son in the distance, he ran to him. See, that's what God is waiting for us. So how do we come to know him? We have to surrender to him. We have to make the effort to turn around and go back to him. Because he's waiting for us. He's waiting to come to us. We just have to say yes. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Everything else is worthless compared to knowing Christ. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I consider everything else garbage. That I may know Christ. Be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God. And is by faith. Paul wanted to be like Christ. To the point of suffering. And we know that he did suffer for his faith. And most of us today, we we won't have that privilege of suffering. We live in a free nation where, where we are freely allowed to gather and to worship. Because the truth is, the scary truth is, we're more apt as Christians to persecute than to be the ones persecuted. But it's because we don't know Christ. We're following the rules and the regulations, but we don't have the relationship. But we have to surrender to him. Back in the 1970s, there was a, a musical called Godspell. 
And in there, there was a song and the chorus said uh, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly day by day. See, in the musical, uh, they were t- uh, it was based on the in the gospel of Matthew with the, the servants and the unforgiving servants. And just to refresh your memory with the parable, there's a servant who owes an enormous debt to his master, a debt he can never pay. And he begs his master for forgiveness, for help. And the master wipes the debt clean. He says it's forgiven. And the servant leaves the master's house and he finds another servant on the street who owes him just but a minuscule amount. And he demands that he pays. And when the other servant doesn't pay, he throws him into prison. And after the parable, Jesus explains, we as followers of Christ must forgive each other from our hearts. And the cast sings that verse, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly, day by day. And see, that needs to be our prayer as the church, as Christians. Do we want to know God? Or do we just want to be religious? to follow the rules, to have our checklists and say, yep, done that, done that, done that. We need to follow Christ. We need to know God and develop that relationship with Him. And it all begins by surrendering your life to Him. And so that's what we offer this morning as we come to our invitation time. And that's something that you need to do to surrender your life to Him. To begin right now saying, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. Not the rules and regulations. I want to follow you. Now is the time. If you have a decision to make, I invite you to come.